When Janelle Flores Bolte learned to meditate at the tender age of six, little did she know it would become her most powerful tool to not only survive, but thrive when her husband was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. In this episode, learn how Janelle navigated trauma and loss with incredible grace and courage. She'll leave you feeling inspired and armed with some practices and new ways of thinking that can lead to a life filled with gratitude, compassion, and abundance. Welcome to the Inside Journey. Hello, and welcome to our episode with Janelle Flores Bolte. Janelle is not only an incredibly dear friend and sister to Johanna and I, but one of the most courageous and inspiring and wise people we know. She has such an incredible story to share. And when we thought about this Inside Journey podcast, Janelle came to mind immediately when thinking about the Inside Journey, and you'll understand why when you hear her speak. Yeah. Welcome, Janelle. We're so happy to have you. Thank you so much. We've been so looking (laughs) forward to this moment. So I'm so curious. I want all of our listeners to understand what is it, what is it that you do in this world for your work? Like, what is it that you just are so passionate with sharing with others? So on the surface, I'm a meditation teacher and I teach an eight week course called mindfulness based stress reduction. But I think that's just the beginning of what I do. So I think underneath all of that, what I offer people is self-discovery. So I am a facilitator of self-discovery. So that means tuning into your intuition, becoming more aware of who you are as a person, what you want to do, what your purpose is, and how to live a life that's filled with gratitude and abundance and magic. (laughs) We love magic. Absolutely. How did you, you know, a life of self-discovery, is this something that you've been living your whole life or how did you fall into this? Um, I think I was initiated into this. My godmother slash aunt, when I was six years old, um, she taught me to meditate. And so she took me out to the forest, which she did with all of us kids. So all of us kids that were in, you know, my family, at some point she would initiate everyone. And so she took us out into the forest. And I remember very clearly, she sat me on a big rock and she said, Miha, I'm going to leave you here for 10 minutes. And I want you to just sit still and listen to the birds, listen to what nature has to tell you. And I'll come back and we'll talk about it. So she did. She put me on a rock and then she took off like she left. (laughs) So she came back 10 minutes later and she said, what did you learn? And so, of course, we had this beautiful dialogue about all the things that I'd heard about the way that it felt to have this big granite boulder under my little tush. And I talked about all of the things that are meditation. I don't think it dawned on me until years later that that's what she was teaching me. But essentially, I've been doing this my whole life. I've been doing this forever. And then I guess became kind of a crisis meditator for a lot of my life, which if you don't know what crisis meditation is, it's like when the shit hits the fan, your butt hits the cushion. And I would always feel like it 
did something somehow. I would shift or something would change and I would get some insight. And then I think, okay, good. I'm done with that. And then I would stop meditating. And it wasn't until some really hugely traumatic things happened in my life that I thought, okay, this crisis meditation isn't working. I need to make it a practice that I do every single day. So, Wow. Wow. What was the first thing that kind of jolted you into becoming a consistent meditator? So I think the first thing was uh, my family and I were at our local pool and my husband had kind of, you know, when you pass off the reins to your partner, like it's your turn to watch the kid. So I told John, I'm going to the bathroom. Your eyes are on Tara, which is my daughter. And at the time she was three and I got up to, I got up. And as I got up, I ran into someone that I knew and we started chatting and we finished our conversation, maybe two minutes, two or three minutes tops. And as I'm walking to the bathroom, I heard so clearly turn around. And when I turned around, I saw this shadow in the pool, this little shadow in the pool. There were people everywhere. There was another mama who was like three feet away. Nobody knew that Tara had drowned. And so when I saw this little figure, this little shadow in the pool, I immediately started running. I jumped in the water. I fished her out. She was blue from head to toe. I remember the soles of her feet were even blue. Her lips were blue. She'd probably been under for at least a minute. Oh my gosh. And so when we pulled her out, she was unconscious. She wasn't breathing. And so we quickly turned her to her side. Someone called 911. And um, she ended up coughing up all this water. She was in the ICU at Children's for, I think, two nights. And she came out completely and totally unscathed. Amazing. It was amazing. She was fine. She was fine. It was miraculous. I remember being with her in the hospital and she looked up at me and she said, mommy, when can I go swimming again? <laughs> and of course, you know, the mom in me in the back of my head is like, never, you will never go back. But it was also this like really clear sign that she didn't have any trauma from, you know, she was ready to go back in. So about six weeks later, I'm in the car, I'm driving down the 680, I'm taking the kids to a birthday party, and all of a sudden, my heart starts racing. It feels like it's going to pop out of my chest. Wow. I can't breathe. My thoughts are so dark and so scattered. I thought I was losing my mind. I had my first panic attack. Mm -hmm. That's what brought me into doing meditation every day, seriously, because I was having such severe anxiety. Uh -huh. I literally thought that I was losing my mind and it was all from this trauma. So although my daughter was fine, I wasn't. What had happened with the experience I had pushed aside as we all do like, oh, that could have been a disaster. Thank God it wasn't right. And you just kind of move on with your day, but there was so much there and so I really dove deep after that. I was like, I am going to go in and I am going to figure out the tools so that I can meet this feeling, so I can meet this anxiety and transform it and be befriend it, become curious about it. So for six months, 
that's what I did. For six months, I practiced all the time. And it was such a gift because six months later, my husband was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. And when we found out that he had it, it had already metastasized to his brain. So that was the beginning of my really serious journey of um, going inward. So you get the news that your husband has stage four lung cancer and it's metastasized. What was, what, what does it, what did it feel like that day? Like what, what, what ran through you? What was, what was your experience with that news? So very quickly, like in a matter of moments, your entire life changes. Everything that you thought you knew is now completely upended. It was rigorous at the beginning. You know, John went through chemo, radiation, surgeries, and our entire lifestyle changed. You know, his diet changed. So many things changed. The doctors gave John a 5% chance of living for two years. Two years. 5%. So they didn't even expect that, right? They say that because two is going to be the most. Um, and so our journey kind of started there with that statistic. And one of the beautiful things about John is that he always considers himself to be an outlier. You know, he was diagnosed really early. So he never smoked. He had lung cancer, but he never smoked a day in his life. And um, there were so many things he had going for him. He was fit. He was young. Um, he had been a non-smoker. He ate pretty well. So there were all of these things that we thought, you know what? Yes, these may be the statistics, but those statistics include people who have been smoking for 25 years and, you know, they're in their 70s. So we thought, all right, we are going to change this up. We really did not believe it. And I think that's kind of the first, that was the first step is what do I believe? What do I believe? I think if anybody is facing this journey, you better decide at the very beginning, what do I choose to believe about how this is going to unfold? That is so powerful. Mm -hmm. And I think for most people, I would imagine they would go straight to fear and victim and blame or right. But it sounds like you and John were so on the same page too, with how you chose to believe. Yeah. I mean, I think we really, we were, and he's so lucky that I am his wife because I think a big part of it too was, I'm not sure that for most people it's, um, it's second nature to be super duper positive in the face of this, you know, like you need an advocate. So that's the thing. You need someone who's behind you, who's like coaching you along the way because it can get really, really scary. As you said, I think a lot of people do go there. And so I think one of the most powerful things that you can do if you ever get a diagnosis like this is get some people in your corner, find your tribe, you know, the folks who are going to really surround and hold and support and nurture you through the process. That is so critical and so, so key. And so it was, it was this long, arduous journey, right? We had two really little kids. Um, Tara was almost four when John was diagnosed 
and Tanner was six. So we had these two littles and our, our whole life really became about John thriving, Mm. believe it or not, like thriving. And so I remember us going to the, you know, oncologist or whoever, what this whole array of doctors that we would see. And they'd say, I don't know what you kids are up to, but whatever it is that you're doing, keep doing it because it was, you know, and we did things like meditation, stress reduction. I always joke that John is my best student, right? My best student. You know, it's interesting. People will say cancer fighting, that whole idea of us fighting cancer or battling cancer or the war against cancer, the language of it has always, it's always disheartened me. It's always kind of, actually, it's always kind of pissed me off. Here's why. Because we're, it sounds like you're in a war with yourself. And so I think that cancer is a part of you, right? It is part of your cells. It's part of the, I always think of it as, you know, when cancer gets flipped on, essentially what happens is that there is this perfect storm, right? There's all of these influences that come together in order for your body to stop balancing itself because everybody actually has cancer. We all have cancer cells in our bodies, but our bodies recognize it. And so once we recognize it, then we take care of it, right? It's just a natural thing that happens with our immune system. We're able to to do what we do, to move it along so that our body stays in stasis. And something happens with folks that have cancer that the immune system stops recognizing it. However, these cells become sort of these rogue cells. And in my opinion, the only way to transform them is with love, is with love. So what if you loved the cancer? I have never heard that in my life before. So how did John love his cancer? They think more of the tools that that I gave him were techniques for managing stress, because just the just the diagnosis itself is incredibly stressful. So interestingly enough, when John was diagnosed originally, I thought I need to do something for myself because here I am, I'm going to be taking care of John. I've got two little kids. I've got a business. How am I going to really manage myself? Yes. How am I going to self-source You guys know this. Mm -hmm. It all starts with you. You got to put on your own oxygen mask, right? So I took a class called Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, this eight-week course that was taught um, here in the Bay Area. And it was originated by a man named John Kabat-Zinn, who we all know, JKZ, very, very amazing man. And um, it was started at the University of Massachusetts Medical Center. Although I am incredibly woo-woo, as woo-woo as they get. I'm also really practical and I want to know like tools, give me some tools. And I want it to be evidence-based and I want there to be some science behind it. So this program was the Cadillac of mindfulness programs. And so I took the class, this eight week class, and I literally like within six weeks of taking this eight week class, I thought, Mm -hmm. yeah, this is what I wanted. This is what I want to teach. I'm going to teach this class. So I ended up 
getting certified through the University of Massachusetts Medical Center. And so I teach this class now. Um, I just decided in that moment, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to add this to my repertoire. And so I teach this course now. And um, yeah, it's amazing. There's only about 300 people in the country that are certified MBSR teachers in this country. And yeah, I'm one of them. I remember you saying once that John has cancer but he's not suffering. Can you talk a little bit about what you meant by that? Absolutely. So the reason that I said that is because pain is inevitable. It's going to happen to all of us at some point or another. We're going to experience pain. Suffering is different. Suffering is a choice. Suffering happens when we allow that loop in our mind to keep going and going and going. So what's interesting about rumination, which is what happens for a lot of us, we ruminate and that's what causes the suffering, is that there's a point when you need to stop that feedback loop and acknowledging what's going on in your mind is key. And you guys, you guys know this. So a big part of it is recognizing it when it starts to happen. So that's a big part of the self-awareness that I talk about is that when you are tuning in to the thoughts that are happening in your brain and you're kind of keeping track of what's happening, then you are better equipped to decide, do I believe this? Is this supporting me? How is this helping at all? So when you're really paying attention which is one of the tenets of mindfulness, right? So mindfulness is about paying attention in a specific way, paying attention on purpose because it matters and in the present moment, right? Not in the past, not in the future, but in the present moment without judgment, right? So paying attention with a sense of curiosity and openness and wonder even. So, I think that although John endured a lot of physical pain, he didn't suffer because suffering happens in the mind. I can only imagine if you are both practicing mindfulness individually and not projecting all of that fear and crap onto each other because there's an awareness that must have helped your relationship. Would you say you guys discovered each other in new ways? I mean, before... You didn't have these practices. Like, what was that like? I, I truly, truly believe that cancer offered John and I a gift. And the gift was, is that we were so present and so alive in our relationship. It was almost like the universe had given us a new set of eyes that the rest of the world didn't have because talk about letting go of bullshit. You really prioritize your life. And so I feel like on so many levels, we were given something that so few couples ever have the chance to experience. I mean, I got to experience this depth of love and courage. Let's just, I just have to tell you, he was no schmuck when I married him. Like he was pretty awesome when we were married, when we got married. But 
to see the way that this man rose to the challenge. If you had told me when I married him what he was capable of, I never would have believed you. It was amazing to behold. And I don't mean he just sort of slogged through life. I mean, he thrived. He went to work every day. He traveled for work. I don't think people, it's not that he didn't tell people that he had cancer, but it definitely didn't define him. And to look at him, you would never know that he had this really serious diagnosis. It was like, we were just given this gift. Who else gets to do this? I mean, come on. It was pretty amazing. It was pretty amazing. Mm. To see the capacity of the human spirit live playing right in front of you. Like we can read about it. We can, we can say it's there, but to, to witness it every day, to say, this is real blows you right open. So let me ask you this. So the anger comes or the sadness comes or the despair comes. And I'm sure you had so many moments. Do you just let yourself feel it full on? Like, what does Janelle look like? Can you give us an example of how you just get angry and let it rip through you or despair? Because I know that for as common centered as you are, you're emotional and you're fiery. And you feel your feelings. And you feel your feelings. What, what were some of those days like where you weren't so perfect or pretty with being centered? And then what did it look like to get back? Oh, well, first of all, I don't believe in being perfect <laughs> or always centered. I, I mean, I am centered, but I think coming from a place of center is a place of authenticity, right? Mm-hmm. So I can be authentic and real with how I'm feeling in the moment. Oh, it can look like an ugly cry, you know, yeah. where I'm just, we should probably back up though. I think that part of my story with John is that John passed. So John passed seven months ago. Beautiful life. So John lived, thrived for six years. When the odds were 5% chance of living two years. Two years. Wait, will you say that you're at how many years did he live? Six. So he six years. He basically tripled his life expectancy. And last April, he was having a fairly routine procedure done, one that he'd had done many times before. And the surgeon nicked his lung and John bled out on the table and died. His heart stopped. And it took them 40 minutes to stop the bleeding. And when he came to, they induced a coma immediately because he had lost so much blood. They were worried about um, organ failure. You know, blood carries oxygen. He hadn't had oxygen to the brain. So they did what was called um, therapeutic hypothermia. Mm-hmm. And so he was basically frozen. And they weren't sure he was ever going to come back. It was really touch and go. And he he did come back. So he, he woke up from the coma. And he spent um, almost three months in the ICU, but made a full recovery and came home. Talk about miraculous. There was 0% chance he was coming home. I mean, they really were, he was never supposed to come home, Um, but he did. So he came home and lived another six months 
and did a lot of really beautiful deep work together. He was very fragile. I always talk about the day that he crossed. It was so unbelievably mundane and yet miraculous at the same time. It was like he just took off his coat and went into the next room. It just felt that um, ordinary, but also so extraordinary. He was laying on our bed and our dog was at the end of the bed and I had my head on his chest. And by this point, he was unconscious, but still breathing. And the kids came in after school and Tanner came up to say goodbye because we had a feeling it was close. And Tanner got home from school at like 4.15. And at 4.44, I heard the last beat of John's heart. I had my head on his chest and I heard that last ba-boom. And then it was just, that was it. It was, I've said this before, but it was like a leaf falling from a tree. Like the tree just knows when it's ready to let it go. And it was so peaceful and so quiet. And I've seen other deaths and I've had other people close to me who have crossed where it's definitely not that peaceful. So there is something so dignified, even in the way that the man chose to exit the planet. Mm. It was amazing, amazing. And to have been gifted to be in that space with him in that moment, right? So to be with him at the moment of his death, it was just, I, f- I feel like it's still, and gifts that he's still giving me. I mean, we could tell stories about the stuff that's happened. I mean, there's been some amazing ways that he and I have continued our relationship. So this crazy love affair, it doesn't have to end. It doesn't have to end. We are still in a relationship with one another, but he's just out of his body. I said at his funeral, at his funeral, I said, you know, the things that John and I were capable of together, the miracles that we made happen together in these puny little (laughs) fragile bodies, these, these human bodies, I remember saying, I cannot wait to see what we're capable of once one of us is omnipotent and like infinite, like right on the other side. So he has definitely shown some signs. Like there's been some pretty incredible things that have happened over the past seven months that they're going in the book. For those of you listening, Janelle does not do anything Mm half-ass, anything. You go fully in. So how has this experience affect or changed the way you work with people? What energy do you bring to people going through this, seeing miracles firsthand? How do you approach the work with people? What do you tell them? So I think because of my experience with John and because of my life, One of the biggest sort of requirements that I have when I'm working with people is that before we even begin the process, I ask people if they're ready to take full responsibility for their lives, for everything that happens. And this doesn't mean that you blame yourself or shame yourself, but it means, am I willing at least to entertain the idea that every single thing that has ever happened to me 
has made me who I am and has been a gift. Everything. And sometimes people really want to stay in that space of victimhood and blaming. And so it's never going to happen, right? If you stay in that space, you're never going to move out of, you know, you're never going to grow. And so one of the things that the foundational pieces is look me in the eye and tell me I accept. Doesn't mean you have to love it. I accept what has happened to me. I take responsibility, which for some people that can be, that's a big mouthful. Oh yeah. Because people say like, oh, so what are you saying? I take responsibility for, um, I didn't have the easiest childhood. And so a part of it has had to be, yeah. And even that, and even that, I'm willing to accept that. So this is a great story. When my aunt, remember I started this with my aunt, Auntie Carmen? So Auntie Carmen was like, she was like a second mom to me. We were very, very close. And when she passed, I was devastated. And her death was much different than John's, much different than John's. And it happened around Christmas time, um, about three years ago. And I was so sad, really sad. Didn't want to put up a Christmas tree, just wasn't in the holiday spirit. And a really good friend of mine who lives in South Carolina called and she said, this is going to sound crazy, but I think that Auntie Carmen has a message for you. And so... She proceeds to tell me that she's just had a dream. And in the dream, we're on a train and I am a bartender and I am making lemon drops for everybody on the train car. And I have this intricate process where I slice a lemon in half and then I pour some sugar on the top and then I pour some vodka over that and it drains through to sop up all that sweetness and kind of the souriness of the lemon and She's watching this whole process unfold and she hears a voice. Mind you, she's from South Carolina, so she's got this beautiful twang. So she says, so then I hear this voice and it's like, me how? <laughs> Just the way she said it's so cute. Me how? Don't forget to enjoy the sweet. She said, I think that's your Auntie Carmen coming through talking. And of course, I mean, come on. I think that Miha probably isn't a ver- isn't part of like maybe the Southern vernacular. So the way she said it, even like Miha. Right. Anyway, so I'm like, yeah, I think Auntie Carmen was coming through telling me, don't forget to enjoy the sweet. And I felt like I had just, and I did. I received this message from beyond. Yes. Interestingly enough, you guys ready for a whopper? Yeah. yeah. Four months ago, so John passed, it it was seven months yesterday. So about four months ago, right before the pandemic. So I think probably in February, around February, I received an email from my kid's kindergarten teacher. And in the email, the teacher said, I'm not sure if I should tell you this or not, but I had a dream last night and I think I'm supposed to just share it with you. In the dream, I was on a train with John and he was holding a lemon tree. No way. Wow. And he said that these lemons were special 
They were special because they weren't sour. Mm. They were savory. Mm. And so I'm reading this email and I'm thinking, okay, so Auntie Carmen came through and she's saying, don't forget to enjoy the sweet. I think John is telling me, savor your life. Savor it because it's precious. So that's what I mean. Like, so I feel like this conversation is still happening with him. Yes. We are still in dialogue. He is still there saying, love, know that your life is to be savored. Experience it all. Feel it all. And you know, Janelle, I love that you honor all of John's signals and signs that he shows you. Because I think we get them all the time. Everyone of us receive them, whether it's pennies or dimes or music comes on the radio or lemons or dreams. And we have a choice. We can acknowledge our beloved spiritual connection with us, or we can say, oh, that's just a coincidence and brush it under the rug. I choose to say, thank you. What else do you have to say to me? Mm -hmm. Do you just, are you just live your life so open to the? Well, you know, what's interesting is, so, you know, Einstein has this really powerful quote about like, we can either choose to believe that we live in a hostile world, or we can choose to believe that we live in a world like full of miracles or something like that. And I personally, I choose the miracle worlds, you know, that's where I want to be also grounded. Right. So I'm grounded in miracle. I know that sounds a little bit like a, like an oxymoron, but I am, I feel like I'm rooted, definitely grounded, but I also know that there is a whole hell of a lot that I do not understand. And if I choose to keep my mind closed I'm never going to see it. Janelle, so tell us where can people find you and what is next for you? Well, you can absolutely visit my website, JanelleFloresBolte.com. And that'll have a list of the classes that I have that are coming up. Um, We can talk about one-on-one work. I work with corporations. I work with individuals. What else? Oh, I think I should probably say I know. Mm -hmm. Well... I've got to write a book. What do you guys think? Definitely. I think, I, I think that book is in the works. This is Definitely. a story that needs to be shared in yes. a yeah. much bigger way. Yeah. And um, yeah, speaking engagements. So I do I do speaking engagements where talk about miracles and magic and listening to your intuition and following your inner wisdom, your inner guidance, inspiration. Yes. If nothing else, I mean... John is an inspiration and continues to be so for me. So I think John really enjoyed being in the room with us. (laughs) Oh, John. I think he really enjoyed this uh, conversation. Such a beautiful tribute to him as a man, your journey together as a couple, and just we're all so touched by it. Mm. So thank Mm. you. Thank you for being open, for being raw, of course, and sharing with our listeners the journey that you had. It was a really, a really big gift. Thank you. That's all for now. If you are inspired by this podcast, hop on over to InsideJourney.com for more episodes and to learn about our work with leaders and teams. And make sure to subscribe to InsideJourney.com so you never miss an episode. As Brene Brown wisely said, when we deny our stories, they define us. When we own our stories, we get to write a brave new ending. We couldn't agree more. Own your story love your story. 
share your story. You never know who it can inspire. Thanks for tuning in. Can't wait for more juicy conversations with you next month.